Okay, we have our Bibles open. Yes, John 15. We're going to be going back and referencing the text quite often, so keep your finger there. I have four points for you this morning. I'll give them to you now and then once more as we walk through the sermon. Point number one, union with Christ. Point number two, eternal security in Christ. Point number three, communion with Christ. And point number four, the joy of Christ. Point number one, union with Christ. This morning's text begins with a parable. And one of the first things that you have to do when trying to understand an extended metaphor like the one in this morning's text is you, you have to try to figure out what all of the moving pieces are. What, what do they all represent in the mind of the author? So there are five sort of key elements or significant images in this morning's parable. Here, here they are. You have the true vine, and then you have the false vine. You have the fruit-bearing branches, you have the non-fruit-bearing branches, and you have the vine dresser. So let's explore. In verse 1, Jesus says, I am, this is the last I am statement of John's gospel, I am the true vine. Now what this implies is that there must also be a false vine. If the true false language is kind of throwing you for a curveball, you can just think about it as if there's a, a good vine and a bad vine. Same thing. So these are the first two images. Now, let's talk about what, what they represent. In order to understand what this vine imagery represents, you have to know just a little bit about the Old Testament. Now, when you read the Old Testament, you see that God uses all kinds of images and illustrations and metaphors and word pictures to talk about his people, Israel. He calls them his flock. He calls them his bride. He refers to Israel as his son. He has a panoply of mammal nouns, uh, mammal images for Israel. They are referred to as horses and donkeys and camels and dumb cows. That one feels like it fits for me. Uh, but one of the most common metaphors that the Lord uses for Israel all throughout the Old Testament is that of a vine. You see it in Exodus, you see it in the Psalms, Jeremiah, and so on. Now, earlier in our service, our sister Alyssa Butcher read uh, one such extended illustration of the vine in Isaiah chapter 5. And the context of Isaiah 5 there is that God is not pleased with Israel, his vineyard. Why? Well, he says that the vines aren't bearing good fruit. Well, why? Why aren't they bearing good fruit? They should be bearing good fruit. He, he goes on to say throughout this extended metaphor that Israel was planted on a very fertile hill. The land was well prepared. He says that he even built a watchtower. And with all of that in place, still, the vine produced no good fruit. It says, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And if you don't know much about grapes, Blaine, wild grapes are bad grapes, okay? So this is Israel. It's bearing bad fruit. 
It is the vine that cannot produce good fruit. The people of God should be holy, loving, just, righteous, obedient. They have been planted by the master gardener. They have been given everything that they could possibly need to bear big old juicy succulent grapes. They have received the word of God. They have been the recipients of the covenant of promise. They have even to their advantage the very presence of God himself. What else could you possibly need to bear good fruit? And so God says, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, that's Israel, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do in my vineyard that I have not done in it? God puts himself on trial. And he says, listen, at the end of the day, I've I've given you every blessing. And yet it has only resulted in more bad fruit. And and God's summary comes in verse 7. He says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So as as the Lord examines the consistently bad fruit of Israel, he determines that it's not his fault. He says, the vine is bad. The vine is rotten through and through. There is no hope for the vineyard of Israel. And so God renders his judgment. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. This is God's judgment on the people of Israel. They will be destroyed. Now, this is, um, to put it mildly, quite severe. You don't just go down and, and tear down the entire vineyard, rip up all the vines out of the ground... Unless something is rotten deep down in the core. And God says that it is. And so he does. Now, this naturally leads to a series of questions from such a severe decision. Such a severe judgment. The first question would be, well, what now? What does this mean for all the covenant promises of God? What does this mean for the salvation of of God's people? What does this mean for the plan of redemption that was supposed to unfold through the vine? Is God just going to sort of throw all of his promises out the window? No. Jesus shows up to the people of Israel. And he says, I am the true vine. You cannot bear fruit, but I will. Okay, so now, what about these branches? Well, when you think about the way 
the, the vine's work. The, the branch is the means by which the vine produces the fruit, right? You can, you can see that logic there in verse 4. Just look there with me. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. And neither can you unless you abide in me. So here's the imagery. The branch is connected to the vine and it receives all of the life-giving goodness of the vine. That's the sap, right? And so the the sap, the life-giving goodness, through the magic of botany, it flows through the vine to the branches and then the branches convert that to fruit. Now, just like there was a true vine and a false vine, there are also true branches and false branches in this metaphor. A true branch is known to be true because it bears fruit. A bad branch is known to be a bad branch because it doesn't bear fruit. You can just see that in verse 2. Look there with me. (coughs) Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You see, with the old vine, that's Israel, with the old vine, you couldn't really evaluate the health of the branches. Because the problem wasn't with the branches necessarily. The problem was with the vine itself. But with this new vine, Jesus, with the, the good vine, the true vine, the perfect vine, everything changes. Because the good vine will always produce fruit, what this means is that if there is no fruit, it's not a vine problem, it's a branch problem. Now this naturally leads us, I think, to another question. It's almost just like you're walking through my sermon prep with me, right? These are the questions that I'm thinking through as I'm studying the text. If all of this is about producing fruit, well then, what is the fruit that we're supposed to bear? What is this fruit that's supposed to come to pass with our union with Christ? Well, I think the simple answer from the text is loving obedience to the glory of God. Loving obedience to the glory of God. I I say loving obedience to the glory of God because there is a kind of obedience that does not redound to the glory of God. I use this illustration to death, but friends, until I can think of a better one, I'm just going to stick with old faithful, okay? You tell your kids to go out and do something. They go out and they do it, but they huff and they puff and they stomp and they moan and they groan and they complain. Are you glorified by that? No, they've been obedient, but not in a way that brings you honor and glory. The kind of obedience that brings your father honor and glory is a happy joyful, delightful, loving obedience. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this morning's text, an obedience that's not born out of a mere sense of duty, but rather born of true and intimate love. I think that's what all of verses 9 and 10 are about. So just look there with me at verses 9 and 10. (coughs) As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. What I want you to see here is that obeying Jesus' commands and abiding in His love are synonymous in John's writings. If you don't believe me, I just encourage you to go read 1 John 
if you have a few free minutes this afternoon and just circle love and obey and then just like connect them all throughout first john and just come back and tell me next week what you see there right love and obedience are synonymous in john's writings and this makes perfect sense when you just stop and you consider the history of israel's failure the history of israel's bad fruit in the old testament you see Israel was constantly trying to walk in obedience without love. Israel was constantly trying to do and say all of the right things, but for none of the right reasons. Isn't this what the prophets are just constantly crying out about? Oh, you love to celebrate your holy days. Oh, you're sure to go to the temple and offer your sacrifices. Jesus comes along and he tells the Pharisees, oh, no doubt, I I know that you're careful to tithe even the tiniest part of your income, your mint, your dill, your cumin. You're doing all the right things, but your heart is not in the right place. This is bad fruit. And so Jesus comes along and he says, listen, in in this new covenant community that I'm building, this, this church that I'm constructing, all of the branches that are connected to me will obey my Father's commandments, not just because they have to, but because they want to, because they actually love the Father. And you can just really see that at the end of verse 10. Go, go back to verse 10. Let's just read it, and then we'll focus on the end. <clears throat> if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Circle this or underline it in your Bibles if, if you do that sort of thing. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So what Jesus is saying here is that if we are truly connected to Him, that we will obey the Father in the same way that Jesus obeyed the Father. Now just stop and think about that for a moment. Jesus says, if you belong to me, you're going to obey the Father the same way that I do, in like manner. Now, how did Jesus obey the Father? Did did Jesus obey the Father out of a sense of rote duty? Was Jesus a box checker in his obedience to the Father? Was he sort of just white knuckle gripping his obedience, gritting his teeth, obeying because he had to, not because he wanted to? Of course not. Jesus' obedience to the word of the Father was born of true love. Listen to how John, I think after quite some time meditating on these words from Jesus, listen to how he emphasizes this same point a little later in his writings. 1 John chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, he says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Why aren't they burdensome? For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So let me just pause and encourage us to do a little self-reflection. Right? Let's just stop and ask ourselves, how are we doing with that? It, you know, it's one thing to, to stop and to say, am I being obedient to the Lord or not obedient to the Lord? And that's good. We do have to ask that question. We need to make sure that we're walking in the light. But I think maybe a more important 
a more eternally significant question for us to ask is, is my obedience begrudging? Is my obedience begrudging? Guys, we live in the Christian South. (laughs) We all know the people. We've all been to the churches. Perhaps we've even been the members where to follow the commands of Jesus feel like we're carrying the weight of the world on our back because really we'd rather be doing anything else. That's not a mark of truly being united to Christ. So, so how are you doing with that? Is your obe- I'm not asking if your obedience is perfect. Don't be silly. I know your obedience isn't perfect. I've never seen that in any Christian ever. Not the most holiest Christian I've ever met. I've never seen perfect obedience. But there is something that sort of stains the obedience of the holiest Christians I've known that says that even when you fail, it hurts you when you fall. And even when you are struggling to obey something because your flesh is crying out within you that you would rather do anything else, you still choose to obey or choose to fight your sin because even though you may right now happen to be infatuated with this sin, you love God more than that sin. You see what I'm saying? So, so how, how are you doing with that right now? You know, this text is labeled the vine parable in most of your Bibles. Uh, and I think that's, that's great, but I like to think about this little section in, in a different light. I like to think about it with the metaphor of the economy of glory. The economy of glory. And here's what I mean. When you just consider a vine, there's a natural fruit economy. We've kind of already talked about how that works, but let's just review it again. The roots are connected to the ground. They bring up the goodness out of the ground, and then that somehow through the magic of botany that turns into sap. And the sap is like the life, lifeblood of the vine, and it flows out of the vine, which is Jesus, right? And it flows into the branches. And then at the tip of the branches, somehow it comes to life in the form of fruit. Now, the vine dresser comes along, and he's able to pluck that fruit and eat that fruit and enjoy that fruit. Well, in this morning's metaphor, in this parable, The sap of the vine represents the love of the Father and the Son. We're going to talk about that a little more later. But the love of the Father and the Son, it flows through the vine. It flows through Jesus. And it flows into us, the true branches that are really attached to Jesus. And then through us and through our lives, the sap is converted into true fruit. That is, when we obey God, The commands of God, because we love God, that is fruit. It it, it glorifies God. It's like God is the vine dresser. He comes along, he sees our loving obedience, and he just takes a big old bite, like a big old juicy peach or whatever your favorite fruit is, and he just enjoys it. This, I think, is the whole point of verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. By this... My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Okay, now, we've covered four of the five characters. Now, what about this vine dresser? This vine dresser. Look back at verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Okay, so now we know who it is. The vine dresser is God the Father. 
He is the one who cultivates the vine so that the vine will, in the end, bear the maximum amount of fruit. You can see that in verse 2. We already saw that, but let's look at it again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why does he prune it? So that it may bear more fruit. (coughs) When you think about the vine dresser, his job is actually pretty simple. It's all about cutting. His work is to cut. He either cuts off the dead branches that are not truly attached to the vine, or he prunes the branches that are attached to the vine so that in the end they bear more fruit. Okay, let's, let's dig into this a little bit deeper. Let's begin by focusing on the dead branches. Uh, the dead branches or the fruitless branches, they are all those who have tried to attach themselves to Jesus but who have then fallen away, right? Those who have professed belief, but in the end, they've shown that their faith was never genuine to begin with. And this, this illustration actually makes a lot of sense when you read it in the context of all of John's gospel. I mean, dead branches is what we have seen throughout the entirety of this book. Jesus goes out, he does his miracles, he preaches, people come to him, they get excited about what he's saying and he's doing, they profess faith in him and then they almost immediately abandon him they didn't really love him and their lack of obedience was the proof these are the dead branches so god the father comes along as the vine dresser and he says look at you look at you trying to graft yourself onto my son snip Oh, you only love the idea of my son, but you don't actually love my son for who he is, snip. You say that you belong to my son, but you prove with your life that you don't really know my son, snip. So those are the false branches. And then there are the true branches. And I want you to try to really enter into this imagery with me here that Jesus gives us. Imagine God, the vine dresser, and he's, he's working out in the garden in the cool of the morning. And he's walking along the vines, and he's a good vine dresser, so he's examining them all in love, carefully, tenderly, patiently. And let's just say that today is pruning day. So as the father walks along the vine and he's examining all the fruit-bearing branches, whenever he sees fruit, he stops and he rejoices He loves the fruit. This is the whole reason why he's working in the first place. But because he is a skilled vine dresser, because he has a goal as a vine dresser to not just have some fruit, but to have the maximum amount of fruit, he stops and as he looks at these fruit-bearing branches, he says, I know you can do more. I know that I can get more fruit out of you, you little branch. So what does he do? He pulls out his shears. And he gently grabs the branch. He doesn't damage it. And then he begins to expertly cut and slice and snip here and there. He never goes too deep. He never cuts off a healthy, fruit-bearing branch by mistake. His hand is steady and precise, like only the hand of God can be. He wounds 
these fruit-bearing branches, but never fatally. He only cuts these branches in such a way as to guarantee that in the end, they will bear the maximum amount of fruit. Now, brothers and sisters, you have to know that God is still doing this today. He's doing this in your life. He's doing this in my life. He comes along and he sees you, you, you tender, gentle little branch, and he sees that you are firmly attached to Jesus. The strength that you possess is in no way based on you. It's based on the attachment that you have to the vine. And he sees you and your life and your fruit, and he rejoices over you. And then he cuts you. Not because he enjoys seeing you wounded, but because he knows that a little pain now will redound in the end to the maximum amount of glory for his name. Friends, do you know what God's great goal for your life is? Don't let this American experience fool you. God's great goal for your life is not for you to experience the least amount of pain possible. That may be your goal for your life, but it's a very shallow goal. And if you belong to Jesus, it's actually kind of the opposite of his goal for your life. His goal for your life is for you to produce the maximum amount of fruit. And if that means that he has to cut you in order to accomplish that, he will. So I just, I wonder, what, what is your goal for life? What do you want more than anything out of this brief breath of existence that you have here on this earth? Maybe your life's goal is to accumulate as much wealth as possible. Maybe your life's goal is to accumulate as much success as possible or to accumulate as many good works as possible. Or to produce the perfect family. I'm just going to pour all of my time and effort and energy to make sure that my family is exactly... Friends, if your goal is anything other than more fruit for your life, God is going to come along with his shears and he is going to wound you. And he's going to wound you in love and he knows that you're weak. He knows how much you can handle. And with great tenderness and care, he is going to prune every carnal desire that is preventing you from being who you are supposed to be in his son. You know, the gospel is so counterintuitive. It says that in order to live, you have to die. In order to be exalted, you have to humble yourself. And it says before you can experience the full bounty of joy that God has for you, you first have to suffer. But we know that it is good. Amen. Point number two, eternal security. By the way, point number one was by far the longest point of the sermon, so don't worry. Point number two, eternal security in Christ. <coughs> uh, today is Reformation Sunday, and because I actually believe in the Reformation, I don't celebrate it, <laughs> even though it's a Protestant holiday. Uh, but I, I do find it kind of interesting that on, on, on Reformation Sunday, we're studying John 15. The reason why I do find it interesting, maybe even ironic, is because of the doctrine of eternal security. 
When you think about the Reformation, you probably think about a whole bunch of really good things. You probably think about heroes of the faith like Martin Luther and access to the Bible in our own language and freedom from the papacy and justification by faith alone and the five solas, yes and amen to all of that good stuff. You don't have to wait for Reformation Sunday to talk about it. This is just the Christian faith. Feel free to celebrate it, study it, talk about it any day, any time. It's just walking with Jesus. But I do want you to know that as a matter of historical fact, there was one aspect of the Reformation that really set the Christian world on fire that's kind of underemphasized whenever we do talk about the Reformation, and that is namely the doctrine of eternal security, the doctrine of perseverance, that all those who know Christ will one day go and be with Christ. You see, when the Reformation came about for centuries, Christians had been living under the, the dark, burdensome, oppressive, and erroneous belief that a true Christian could lose their salvation. And the way that it was taught in the Roman Catholic Church, it was not only that you could, but that you almost certainly would unless you trusted in the Mother Church. Now, to be sure, some Protestants still believe that Christians can lose their salvation. And I know because I used to be one of them. And whenever I would have an argument with another Christian, I would go to two places in my Bible to try to prove that you could. I would go to Hebrews chapter 6 and I would go to John chapter 15. And when I would come to John 15, I would go to verses 2 and 6, and I would just point out the in Jesus language there, right? Jesus says, all the branches that are in me who are eventually cut off and thrown into the fire. And I'll say, well, you see, they were in Jesus, but then they were cut off and thrown into the fire. That's losing your salvation. There's no other way around it. Well, there, there was some other way around it. I, I was actually wrong. I, I didn't really understand what I was saying. And so I want to tell you now that it's wrong. And, and if I had just learned the basics of good Bible reading, I would have seen that it was wrong without ever having to leave the context of John 15. I mean, you can just study the book of John entirely, in its entirety, and you can see that there's a kind of being in Jesus that isn't really in Jesus, Right? Because all throughout John's gospel, we've seen that there are people who are disciples, but who are not really disciples. There are people who believe in Jesus, but who don't really believe in Jesus. It is possible to be in Christ and not at all in Christ. That's kind of the modus operandi of John's gospel. Now, let me show you what I mean specifically in verse 16. Turn there with me. Look at verse 16. Jesus tells his disciples, the 11 that are left, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, all the way back in verse 3, Jesus told the disciples that they were the good branches. He says, you're not the bad branches, you're the good branches. And he says this by, by telling them that they've already been made clean by his word. That's the same thing. I could prove it to you, but I think it would add like an extra 10 minutes to our sermon. Are you got another 10 minutes? We good with that? No, I'm just kidding. But just if you, don't, if you, if you doubt that, I'll, I'll show you later. So you have already been made clean by my word. You're the good branches. Great. That's good news. Praise God. But then in verse 16, Jesus comes back and he says, hey, good branches, I want you to know 
that you're not good because you made yourself good branches. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Now, this is the doctrine of election, which teaches that God chooses all those whom he will save in eternity's past. And we've hit that note pretty hard throughout John's gospel. I don't know how you can really work through John's gospel and not believe in the doctrine of election. So we're not going to hit that uh, much harder this morning. Um, But for now, I want us to see something that he says in the second half of verse 16. In the second half of verse 16, Jesus goes on to tell the disciples not only that he chose them, but that he chose them to bear fruit. Now, we've already seen that the bad branches don't bear fruit. And then after he tells them that he chose them to bear fruit, he tells them that he not only chose them to bear fruit, but to bear the fruit that will abide. It absolutely, positively will last. This is good fruit, not dying fruit, not decaying fruit, not fake fruit. This is fruit that will last until the end. So I just don't see how you can walk away from that and interpret this any other way than to say that, no, you cannot lose your salvation. And if you say that, you're kind of missing the whole point of the good branch, bad branch illustration that Jesus is teaching us here. Jesus says, I choose who is a good branch. I make them a good branch so that they bear fruit and so that their fruit will last. I don't make people good branches that eventually turn into bad branches. You see? And then Paul, later, writing to the Ephesians, he's writing to a bunch of brand new Christians. Isn't it funny? We we say election, predestination, this is high-level doctrinal stuff that we should only really be teaching Christians after they've reached this point of spiritual maturity. But Paul comes along and he tells all these brand new Christians in Ephesus who were just like, you know, like a year ago, like pagans in the pagan temple. He comes along and he says this, For we Christians are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's like he's saying the vine dresser chose you to be a good vine so that you would produce good fruit for the glory of God's name. Same thing. Now, point three, communion with Christ. Verses 12 through 15 show us where Jesus gets really personal with his application for us here. So let's read those verses. Follow along with me. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, listen, there's two ways you can preach a text like this, right? I could either spend like 10 weeks picking apart those verses, like a couple words at a time, because it's just so full of goodness. Or I can just sort of summarize and highlight one particular aspect. So that's what I'm going to do today. I just want to show you one thing from these verses. I want you to see here that what Jesus is calling you to, when he's calling you to loving obedience, 
is utterly personal. That, that's the feeling that I, I want you to get from verses 12 through 15. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm a real person. I've brought you into a real relationship with me at great personal cost. I died to save you. I love you. And not only do I love you, this is one of my favorite things about Jesus. He says, but I like you. (laughs) You're my servants, but I'm actually going to call you my friends. Now, one thing that this must mean for us is that we must not merely understand our relationship with Jesus at a conceptual level. We must not merely have a relationship with Jesus at a conceptual level. Jesus is not a concept. Do you understand that? He's a person. Sean, do you get that? As you're reading the Bible and you're studying and you're reading all these theology books and as you're going up there preaching to your people, do you get this? He's there. He's a real person. He's not an abstract. He's not a principle. He's made me his friend. I can't be friends with a concept. And so what Jesus is calling us to is communion with him. Just listen to the language that he employs in verse 9. And listen carefully. I know I say that before I read every scripture. Listen to this scripture. Listen. No, really, whatever you're distracted by, just stop other than a baby, you know, diaper blowout, can't control that. But really, focus with me. Focus. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. This is astonishing. The love that the Father has for the Son is the way that the Son loves you. Abide in my love. What does it mean to abide in the love of Christ? It means To love Him in the same way that the Father and the Son love each other. They don't love each other with a cold, impersonal, detached, conceptual, philosophical kind of love. They love each other like people because they are persons. The mystery of the Godhead. How exactly do the members of the Trinity exist as persons? I don't fully understand it, but I know it's true. Their loving relationship is deeply personal. The Father enjoys the Son. The Son enjoys the Father. They commune with one another. And they have been loving and communing with one another for all of eternity. Just stop and think about the reason why God the Father and God the Son, the first two members of the Trinity, have revealed themselves to us with this imagery. We know, do we not, that the Father did not literally sire the Son, right? They don't have bodies. There's no mother God involved. This is a a metaphor. This is imagery. So now here's the question. Why did the Father and the Son choose to reveal themselves using the Father and Son image? Well, because it says something about the nature of who God is. It says something about the interpersonal, relational, loving nature of our triune God. If you want to know what it looks like for the first person of the Trinity to relate to the second person of the Trinity, you won't be able to fully understand it. But as close as you can get is by looking at the way a father and a son love one another. 
You know, I think the difference between a conceptual Jesus and a real Jesus that we actually have a relationship with can be most easily seen in our prayer lives. We just start with the question of like, do we talk to him at all? He's there. He loves us. He's told us in his word that his deep desire is to do us good. Do we talk to him? And then when we do talk to him, how do we talk to him? Do we talk to him as if he is an actual person? I'm just thinking about myself and my my own history with prayer. How often I talk to him like I'm reciting a text or like I'm running through a checklist or like I'm trying to impress a seminary professor. You guys know the kind of prayer I'm talking about? You know, I would much rather just have the prayer of just a little old lady or just some brand new believer who when we go to pray, he just says, God, I love you. I don't know what I'm doing. Please help me. Because that's a prayer of someone who actually knows that their God is present with them as compared to, oh, most omnibenevolent and holy and, you know, I mean, yeah, you might impress some of the people around you, but who are you talking to? Who are you talking to? If me and Andrew were talking, and Andrew said, Oh, Sean, the pastor of 6th Avenue Church, I'd be like, Andrew, what are you doing? Stop. Who are you talking to, buddy? Talk to me. I'm right here. Listen, I could talk more about this, but there's another point related to prayer that I want us to see here without moving on, and it's in verses 7 and 8. So look there with me. Jesus says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, this is the language of communion. This is the language of us having a relationship with Jesus, like he's actually a person. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is staggering. This is staggering. This is one of the most incredible promises in all the Bible. I've known Christians who have walked with the Lord for 30 plus years who, when I sat down to have a Bible study with them, they didn't know how to find the New Testament. Conversely, I have known Christians who live in the Word. They breathe the Word. They feast on the Word. And they know the Word so well that if you cut them, it's like they bleed Bible. Now, if you were to set these two kinds of Christians up on a spectrum, we'll call them the Bible-bleeding Christians and the Bible-anemic Christians. If you set them up on a spectrum, and we were to say this, which of these two Christians gets their prayers answered more? The answer is always going to be the Bible-saturated, the Bible-bleeding Christian, but maybe not for the reasons that you think. See, you might hear that and think, in sort of a a legalistic or mechanistic or a a currency fashion. You might think, well, he reads more of the Bible, therefore God favors him because he's doing all the right things, and God answers his prayers. Well, actually, no, that's that's not at all what Jesus is saying. What I think Jesus is saying here in verse 7 is that those who live in the Word have more answered prayers because their desires have been shaped by the Word. Do you see that? If you... Abide in the word. 
If you abide in Christ and his word abides in you, not legalistically, but lovingly, then his word will live in you in such a way as to fundamentally shape the things that you want most in this life. So Jesus says, if, if you love me and, and you, you have a relationship with me, you can ask me for whatever you want. I love that language he uses. You can ask me for whatever you want. Why can you ask for whatever you want? Because you'll want the things that he wants more than the things of this world. Just think about the prayer that our, our brother Will Stevenson led us in this morning. Think about the things that he prayed for. He prayed for the right exercise of authority. He prayed for uh, suffering brothers and sisters under the, the cruel tyranny of persecution. He prayed for growth and holiness in our church. Think about what our brother Michael Bush prayed for us this morning. He prayed that we would grow in our sanctification, that we would mortify the flesh, that we would put our sins to death and trust more fully in Jesus Christ. Do you think God's going to say no to that kind of prayer? Think about Paul's prayers. Lord, I pray that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened so that they might be able to fully comprehend your love. Do you think God's going to say no to that? You look out at the billions of lost souls in the world and you start praying, Lord, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Send more workers into the field. You think God's going to say, nah, I'm, not today. No. When you live in the word, the word shapes you. <clears throat> Please beware, brothers and sisters, of those who comes selling spiritual snake oil. Beware of those who would sell you the Christian version of CBD products. No offense if anyone takes them to go to sleep at night. Maybe some offense. Beware of those who come and say, I have the secret to prayer, and you can know it if you'll just buy my book or listen to my podcast, or attend my church, or send in this amount of money. Friends, there is no secret to answered prayer. If it is a secret, it's the worst kept secret ever. Because Jesus just, he put it right here in his word. You can just look at it right there. If you want to have answered prayers, all you have to do is, it's so easy, just immerse yourself in the word so much that you want everything that God wants. Not hard, right? But when you want the right things, you ask for the right things. And when you ask for the right things, God gives you everything that you ask for and more. Now to him who is able, says the Apostle Paul, to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Point number four, our final point. I'm sad too. I want to keep going. <coughs> point number four, the joy of Christ. There was an American journalist uh, by the name of H.L. Mencken. And he once famously called uh, the Puritans, or he called Puritanism, the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. Well, friends, nothing could be further from the truth. In reality, the Puritans were known as theologians of joy. 
Now, the reason why H.L. Mencken thought that they were so devoid of joy is because they understood what Christ is teaching us here in John 15, that true joy can only flow from obedience. What Mencken wanted was was joy minus obedience to God. I think one of the coolest things about this morning's text, and maybe there's a better way to say that, but I can't think of one. I'm just, I'm just sitting here reading the text throughout the week, and I'm, I'm studying, I'm trying to wrap my mind around it, and the vine, and the branches, and uh, and then you get to verse 11. Oh, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I wonder if perhaps you have come to view Mencken or you've come to view God like Mencken viewed the Puritans. You think that God is opposed to joy. Your reformed theology has gotten the best of you and you've become a prude. Friends, I hope hope it's not true. I hope that you haven't come to think that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father with a frown on his face. I hope that you haven't come to think of God as this this sort of giant Catholic nun just sitting up in heaven with a ruler waiting to wrap your knuckles the second that you smile or have any kind of fun in this life. Friends, God's greatest aspiration for your life is twofold. Number one, that you bear fruit to the glory of his name. And two, that you rejoice as you do so. And I say that these are two things, but John Piper has really been telling us for like 30 years that this is actually one thing, right? He's been telling us that God is most glorified in us when we find our deepest joy in him. So it's really one thing. Now, I want you to notice the very specific language that Jesus uses here. Jesus does not simply say, I want you to have joy. That in and of itself would be great. What a great promise. What a, what a tremendous uh, aspect of, of the heart of God for us to consider. He wants us to have joy. But that's not what he says. He says, I want my joy, my joy. To be in you. Well, okay, well then what is his joy? Simply put, his joy, the joy of Christ, is that which he experiences as he delights in the love of his Father. His joy is that which he experiences when the Father delights in him and he perceives his father's delight in him. I know that's kind of wordy. Let me just say it another way. If you have a dad and you're hanging out with your dad and you see that your dad loves being around you, that makes you happy. So let me just kind of say it another way. As the father and the son love one another, the experiential result of that love is a feeling of joy. Just stop and think about being with the person that you love most in the world. What should that produce in you? It should produce a feeling of joy. But there's a problem with that. (laughs) This analogy breaks down in a world of sin because, well, you're a sinner. 
And the person that you love most in the world is a sinner. And the valves of your heart through which the joy must pass are all gunked up with sin and the effects of our transgression. So the joy that you experience from the interrelational love that you have in this world is tainted. It's fleeting. It's a lesser joy. That's why Jesus doesn't say, I want you to have joy. He says, I want you to have my joy. Why? Because his joy is not fleeting. It's not a lesser joy. It's a greater joy. It's an eternal joy. It's a pure joy. It's a holy joy. It's an incorruptible and immovable joy. The joy of Christ is a joy that is rooted in the very nature of God himself. And Jesus says, what I want for you more than anything in this world is that you have that. So back to asking really simple questions. Is this what you want for yourself more than anything in the world? Is this what you want for your spouse, for your parents, for your children, for your coworkers, for your neighbors? Is this what you want for them more than anything else in the world? Uh, it has to be. It has to be, friends, because this world is full of lesser joys. And we are so dumb that we will trade in the great, eternal, significant, lasting, pure, deep, holy joy of Christ for these lesser, trivial, pathetic joys, these fool's gold joys, these poisoned apple joys that promise us satisfaction but will just ultimately lead us to the grave we will look at that joy and say oh give it to me and then here's the joy of christ and we just have completely left it in the rear view friends the only way to be able to resist the lesser joys of this world is to be firmly and deeply rooted in the joy of christ is to let the joy of his love flow through you as you are connected to him, as you abide in him and he lives in you. Friends, I want you to consider before leaving that there is something standing in the way of your joy that's called sin. And there is an eternal alternative to your joy. And that's called hell. You could really say that the main point of Jesus' message to you this morning is that you have these two paths before you. You have the path of everlasting joy, obedience, love, abiding in Christ. And you have the path of eternal flames. Now when I say something like eternal flames, I'm just getting that right from the text, right? You can see that in verse 6. Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Now you may be sitting here thinking, well, I didn't know that this was going to be one of those hellfire and brimstone sermons. I mean, so far the sermon has been pretty good. I got a little intellectual vine and branch stuff going on, and then I got you know, some love stuff 
And then I got some, right? And I'm getting all this good stuff, right? And then here you are, you ruin it. You, you, you're talking about joy, and now you're talking about hellfire and brimstone. Well, yeah. Because Jesus says that we have to if we care about our eternal joy. This is one of those sermons. Now listen, maybe you have come to think about hellfire and brimstone preaching in one of two ways. The first hellfire and brimstone kind of preaching, probably, you know, maybe you've experienced it in one of the churches that you went to growing up. It's where the pastor gets up into the pulpit and he just, it seems like he just, he's there to do this one thing. He loves it. He thrives on it. He just wants to look everyone in the eyes and say, you're going to burn in hell. I've been there. And I get it. If, if that's what you think hellfire and brimstone preaching is, I, I don't want that either. I don't want to preach a sermon like that. But maybe not for the reasons that you think. See, I don't want to preach a sermon like that because it actually doesn't go far enough. Jesus' hell, fire, and brimstone preaching is actually meant to point towards a suffering that's greater than a burnt body. You have to understand, friends, that the, the thing being symbolized can never be fully captured by the symbol itself. So when Jesus comes along and he says, hey, the fires are what awaits you, he's not assuming that you will understand that fire is the worst thing that can possibly happen to your soul. Friends, believe me when I tell you, those who are suffering in hell today would trade in an instant what they are experiencing for a burnt body. Hell is not merely a place where you go and you feel the effects of fire. Hell is a place that is utterly devoid of the life of God. Hell is a place that is utterly devoid of the joy of God. You will be shut in the outer darkness away from the presence of God. And a burnt piece of flesh can in no way compare to the suffering of hell. So my problem with the you're going to burn preaching is not that it tells you that you're going to burn. It's that it doesn't tell you that there's something worse than fire. But Because I love you, I will tell you today that there is something worse than that. And I hope that you see to go along with this very dark and gruesome and painful and scary image. I hope you see something of the nature and character of God. Who says that his heart's main desire is that you don't go to such a place. His heart's desire for you is not to punish you, but to save you. To connect you to his son Jesus, to let his love flow through you. His heart is inclined to you, not for your suffering, but for your joy. So there are two paths before you, and they are before you this morning. I pray by God's grace that you will choose wisely. Let's pray. Father God, if any of us here are in you but not in you, we pray that you would reveal it to us. Even if it hurts us, God, we pray that you would show us the reality of our sin. And then, God, we pray that you would show us the glory of your Son. And we pray that you would make his joy our joy forever and ever. Amen.
Amen. Let's stand and sing.